The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the 22nd day of May 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, with us as always right across the way. I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight, and I'm glad you could be with us. We've got a great show up ahead for you. First up, we'll welcome in the great Hall of Famer, one of the newest Hall of Famers, Jim Cott, and we'll be discussing his new book, Good as Gold, My Eight Decades in Baseball. In the second half, we'll welcome in the great sports writer, formerly of the Boston Globe, Bob Ryan. He's got a new book out titled In Scoring Position, 40 Years of a Baseball Love Affair. So we got lots of love for baseball tonight with these two gentlemen up ahead. So sit back, relax, get comfy, enjoy the show on GBB tonight. As always, some great people, some great sports memories lie right up ahead for you. As always, social media. We're out on Facebook. You can find us there. We are on LinkedIn, that value-added business tool. And we are also on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter also at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry because they're all cataloged out on our website. Well, our first guest, he was a major league pitcher for 25 seasons from 1959 through 1983. He was the pitching coach for the Reds from 84 to 85. Since then, he's been an analyst for the Twins, the Yankees, CBS, ESPN, TBS, and the Major League Baseball Network. He's got 283 wins. He's a three-time All-Star, a world champ in 1982 with the Cards, and 16 Gold Glove Awards. He'll be inducted into the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown on July 24th. We can't wait for that. It's great to welcome to the show tonight, Jim Cott. Jim, good evening. Well, good evening. Thank you for that, uh, wow, spectacular introduction. <laughs> you, you're quite welcome, Jim, and it's much deserved, <laughs> much deserved. Now, when you were growing up up in Michigan, Jim, who were your sports heroes and teams back then? Uh, the Philadelphia Athletics. Wow, okay. My, yeah, my dad was a, uh, he was a Connie Mack fan. I think, uh, Connie Mack, who managed the, well, he's got more wins in history than any other manager. He, he managed and owned the Philadelphia Athletics, and he had to mm-hmm. oftentimes sell off a lot of his good players to meet payroll. And I guess that's why my dad kind of, you know, empathized with him, and that that became my team. And then they had a little left-hand pitcher named Bobby Shantz, who right. won the American League MVP in 1952. He was known as the best fielding pitcher of his generation. So uh, he's a guy I followed a lot. Excellent. Okay, yeah. Uh, easy to see why the Philadelphia A's can be admired like that, Jim. Now, as a member of the 65 Twins, you guys won the AL pennant that year. And you started three games in the series, and you matched up against Sandy Koufax. Must have been tough. Yeah, it was more than tough. You yeah. Know, in, those days, uh, in those days, the only game on TV 
was on Saturday afternoon with uh, Pee Wee Reese, Dizzy Dean, and we were all playing on Saturday, so I never got to see uh, Sandy pitch and see him on television, never saw him in spring training. So my first actual uh, meeting with him is when we shook hands behind the batting cage before game two of the 65 World Series. And then, of course, I saw him up close when we warmed up to start the game. And, uh, boy, it was it was just so impressive. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm honored that he's become a friend over all these years. And uh, when I look at the, the great pitchers of my baseball era, it's hard to separate uh, pitchers like he and Bob Gibson and Juan Marichal and Tom Seaver, but I, I just kind of put Sandy a cut above. Uh, you know, he pitched for teams that didn't score a lot of runs for him. Uh, he had to win a lot of close games, and he, you know, he had the no hitters, a perfect game. Uh, he, he was something special, and uh, it was it was difficult. But it, when I look back, it was quite an honor to uh, hook up with him three times in the World Series. Yeah, that that must have been spectacular, Jim. Now, your best season, probably 66. You had 25 wins. And think think about this, folks, 19 complete games. You're lucky if you see that for a whole season from guys, uh, from pitching staff. But uh, Jim did that back in 66. Now, they only gave away one Cy Young Award back then, ladies and gentlemen. And that, of course, went to Sandy Koufax. Now, uh, that must have been a letdown, Jim. Well, not really. Uh, Sandy and I were tied with, I think it was eight days to go. Uh, I had just won my 25th. He did as well. And uh, so Sam Neely, because we were in Baltimore, had already clinched the pennant. He said, if you'd like to come back on short rest, I could get you two starts. So I think I started on the third day one of those games. Uh, one, I didn't pitch particularly well. The other, I lost a really close game. And so I ended up with two more losses, 27, uh, 25 and 13, and Sandy went 27 and 9. So I, I knew he deserved that, but I think because of that year and, and because Sandy, I think, had won it three out of four years and the National League was kind of dominating it, that the writers said, well, why don't we just give one uh, to each league? So uh, I kind of count that season in 66 as helping American League pitchers win the Cy Young in the future. Right. Yeah. Well, we move along to 67, Jim. Now, that's the st- I think that's the first season that I really remember is 67. And that was the tremendous American League pennant race between uh, the Minnesota Twins, the Boston Red Sox, the Detroit Tigers. Now, it went down to the wire, didn't it? Uh, it certainly did. Actually, yeah. That entire, yeah, that entire month of September... Uh, was almost like playoff baseball is today because uh, there were no playoffs and you had four teams still with a shot to win the pennant with about three days left in the season. So the pressure of those September games was, uh, in my mind, equal to uh, to playoff games. And then uh, uh, Yaz just had that tremendous month of September and won the MVP and the Triple Crown. And uh, that was a... That was the start of Red Sox uh, Nation. It was disappointing for us, uh, you know, to come that close. We just needed one win on the weekend, one of those two games, and and didn't get it. But it was uh, exciting to be a part of that. 
The impossible dream, Jim. The impossible dream from the 67 Red Sox, from our own buddy uh, out here in Bridgehampton, Long Island, Carl Yastrzemski. And, with, of course, those folks uh, getting on in years like me remember that, that time of Yastrzemski back in Long Island. And uh, as Jim said, uh, what a season and what an ending of the season he had. We're speaking with the great Jim Cott tonight on the program. Now, Three times All-Star, Jim. Gold Glove Award 16 times. Believe it or not, folks, that is not the record. The record is held by Greg Maddox, who has 18, which is unbelievable as well. Now, I, I, I want to ask you, Jim, uh, since I was a kid, I've been looking at, at these Gold Glove Awards. I always imagined it as like uh, a hard, solid gold piece of material, but it's not, is it? Well, the the early ones were actually a regular glove that was gold embossed, and uh, uh, they were much more. They've gotten a little glitzy in in the last few years, much more elaborate, uh, and, and the gloves are bigger. I don't know if they use an actual glove anymore or not, but uh, the original ones, uh, which uh, one of mine, they just uh, the curator from the Hall of Fame came over and got some of my artifacts, so they took my first one from 1962. Uh, to display in, in Cooperstown for a year. Uh, so yeah, they were, they were, uh, real gloves. You know, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a gold glove award, uh, when I got my first one. My dad was an avid reader of the sporting news. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in those days, in the fifties, uh, sporting news came to the house on Monday. It took all week to read it. There were so many teams, so many stories, you know, teams in the minor leagues. And then I remember in the in the winter of uh, of '61, in my sporting news, it had Gold Glove winners in the American League, and I saw my picture, and I called my dad and I said, "I just won an award called the Gold Glove Award. I've never even heard of it." And then I found out, of course, it was for fielding excellence. And my boyhood hero, Bobby Shantz, you know, started winning them in '57. Uh, and then he went to the National League, so I, I uh, kidded him. You know, he went to the National League now, so I got a chance to win it in the American League. If Bobby wasn't traded, he probably would have continued to read him. I think he pitched uh, through 65. And if, if they gave it out in the late 40s during his career, he would have won a lot more of them. Understood. Yeah, the great Bobby Shantz. Now, you used the same glove for 15 seasons, Jim? Yes, I, I gave him that glove too. You know, I got, I got the, uh, we had glove contracts in those days, but they weren't big deals. We got two free gloves and two pair of shoes from Wilson. Uh, I like to wear Riddell shoes. They fit better. So I would give my Wilson shoes to the minor league kids. And with my gloves, uh, I would, I would break one in. I would use it at batting practice in days I didn't pitch. And then the other one I would break in as a lot of players call their gamer, mm-hmm. you know, so I would rub it with neat's foot oil and, and put two baseballs in it, rub rubber bands around it, and shape it the way I wanted. So that original A2, A2508 I started using in the mid-60s, and I used it through the early 80s. And it was, uh, the Hall of Fame has that too. It's got holes in it. It's been restrung to try to keep the fingers together. It's got black friction tape around the wristband and uh wow it's kind of glove if you threw it on the street a kid would probably put it in his trash can but uh (laughs) it it just it was so comfortable and fit me well i i just always kept that 
for when I was at games. Well, we're going to look forward to seeing that glove uh, in July, Jim, that's for sure. Now, uh, you were a starting pitcher primarily. You became a reef relief pitcher in the season that you split between the Phillies and the Yankees. How did you change your approach from becoming a starting pitcher all those years to working out of the pen? Well, the the first thing was, you know, warming up. Uh, you had to learn to get ready in a hurry. Uh, and then the the next thing was the tendency when you were a starter, it's kind of like you're running a five-mile race. You know, you start out and, uh, you know, there's not so much tension the first inning. You're getting the feel of the mound. You're kind of getting a feel for what your pitchers are doing that day uh, because you think you have, you know, nine innings to to do a good job and hold the other team down. But when you can, come in in relief in a pressure situation, it's like, say, tie game in on second, the tendency is to begin to overthrow because you, you that that little voice in your mind says, well, you you got to get this guy out, so you try to throw harder, you try to make your curve break better, bigger. So I, I learned over, you know, with a few experiences that I had to learn to pitch the same way as if I was starting the game. I couldn't pitch any differently. And so I, I was Whitey Herzog. I mean, first of all, by an emergency, the Yankees uh, picked my contract up in 79 from the Phillies because the Phillies weren't really using me. And they need a little help in the bullpen. So that's when I started uh, becoming a lefty-lefty specialist. And then with the Cardinals, I was still starting a few games. And I actually I enjoyed starting, but uh, Whitey made me his lefty-on-lefty guy. And I, I really enjoyed that because every day you came to the park, you felt like you had a chance to get in a game. And uh, what, what made it most enjoyable was that in 1982 we won the World Series. So... That was uh, that was good being a relief pitcher and being a part of that team. Yeah, that was a great Cardinals ball club, Jim. That definitely was. Now, after your playing career, you entered into coaching, and uh, Pete Rose made good on a promise to you about you becoming a coach. We'll see Pete that weekend. Pete will be in uh, his usual place in Safe at Home. Uh, one of the stores on Main Street, Pete's there every year signing autographs, so he will be in town that weekend, Jim, uh, of induction. But uh, you had a short stint with the Reds as their pitching coach. Yeah, uh, Pete. In fact, I talked to Pete a couple weeks ago, and he mentioned that uh, he wondered whether I, w- I won't sign during induction week, but he will be there, so I may see him. But, uh, yeah, when we competed against one another, uh, Pete loved to – if he made a ground out, he'd love to run over the mound and make the pitcher move. And I could see that. And so I, I started to move in his way so that he had to either run me over or go around me. And he would look at me with a little grin on his face back. And so he told their batting practice pitcher, Henry King, he said, you go over and tell Jim that if I get a managing job, I want him to be my pitching coach. And so when Pete did get the job in in 84 and my playing career was done uh, worked out perfectly so I went and I enjoyed the year and a half but you know you put in more time for less money as a coach than you do as a player and then when the announcing field opened up I saw that this could be you know a great opportunity for me to not you know not work 162 games and uh, so that's what led me after the 85 season to uh to go into broadcasting in 86 i was working with bill white and scooter doing yankee games 
Right, yeah. Like you say, Jim, why kill yourself? Uh, <laughs> you just sit in the booth and, and uh, analyze the ball games. M- much easier, much easier. Now, you're going to have your number retired by the Twins also, uh, I think, the, the weekend before Cooperstown? Yeah, that's uh, very that's very special to the Twins. Uh, Dustin Morse, who's their media relations director, had uh, had asked me, he said, if you're uh, available on Monday, uh, I'd like to do a Zoom call uh, with some of the writers. So that's what I was prepared for. And then when they hooked us all up, it was the seven living, I think there are six, six living twins that have had their number retired. So Rod Carew and Ken Herbeck, Bert Blylevin, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Maurer, and Tony Oliva, uh, they were all on this conference call welcoming me to having my number retired. So that's going to be a special day. I have a lot of my family uh, members that are that are coming for that, that live in the Midwest. So that's, uh, that's quite an honor, uh, and uh, I'm very appreciative to the Twins for doing that. Quite a, quite a month you, you got lined up, Jim, that's for sure. Now, talk about your broadcasting career. How, how many Emmy Awards do you have, Jim? Well, I think seven. Wow. Yeah, I think seven. Nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was fortunate. Uh, Tony, Tony Kubek recommended me, uh, for the Yankee job when he retired in 90, after the 94 season. And, uh, so that was the same time that, uh, the Yankees, you know, Derek Jeter came up, uh, part time in that year. And that's when they really, uh, were good for like the next seven or eight years. So it was, uh, quite a pleasure to announce games on the MSG network for that team. And I think that's what helped me get exposure, particularly in the New York market, because uh, the Yankee ratings during that time were, I think they were higher than the national ratings because local TV is that way. You have your local fans following your team. So that really uh, gave me the exposure on TV. And I worked with great people like Kenny Singleton and uh, Al Trotwig at that time, uh, Michael Kay, when, when uh, we started as yes in 2002 so uh that was a that was a big bonus uh, for me being able to work in a market like that quite a storied broadcasting career that that's uh definitely true jim cott is with us tonight on the program now now your book will will get down to your book jim it's it's called folks as uh, good as gold my eighth Eight decades in baseball. It is from our friends out in Chicago, Triumph Sports. Uh, who came to you about uh, really chronicling the eight decades, Jim? It, it's a great title, and it's a, it's a, it's a great uh, subject, a great topic for a book. Well, I had written a book uh, years ago with Phil Pepe called Still Pitching, and that meant still pitching in the broadcast booth after I was done pitching on the mound. Uh, and then in talking to my friends, Tim McCarver and other friends have been around the game for a while. They said, you know, you, you have so many friends in baseball and you've been in it for so long. Maybe you ought to, you know, write a book about all your friends and maybe a little page on each one of them. Uh, uh, you know, your experiences were with them. And, and that's what kind of led me to the idea. I wanted to wait, uh, until I got the eighth decade, Bob Costas and said he, he wanted me to definitely work some games with him starting in the year 2020. Uh, now he didn't work any in 2020 because of the pandemic. And then we, we did some in 2021 and now, uh, we've done a couple already in 22, but that's what, uh, he said there aren't that many 
you know, players who have transferred into executive positions are announcing that her career spanned eight decades. And then I got the idea with Doug Lyons, who was my co-writer, and he's uh, he's written several books co-writing with other baseball players and athletes. And uh, I just thought we'd we'd take each decade and talk about my experiences, good and bad. And then toward the end, I I kind of uh, refer to how the game has changed, things I like, things I don't like, uh, just kind of fantasizing about the way I wish the game would be today. And I, you know what I've been impressed about is that some of the – uh, people that have had me on, like yourself, I can tell they've actually read the book and uh, they ask some really good questions about what's in the book. So that's uh, I've done one signing so far out in uh, Ridgewood, New Jersey. But uh, oh, I'm bookends, eager to see yeah, after, yeah, bookends, right? Uh, yeah, out in Ridgewood. I'm, I'm eager to see how uh, how the book does because the advance uh, interest in it has been very good. I can see why. Folks, it is an excellent read. The forward, by the way, is by another Hall of Famer that we uh, that Jim just mentioned. Bob Costas does the forward. And uh, as Jim said, it, it chronicles the eight decades, one at a time, uh, goes into his, starting with the playing career of Jim Cott, broadcasting, as he said, his likes and dislikes, of course, the entry into the Hall of Fame, and uh, items that have changed. Now, I want to ask you specifically, and it's it's still rearing its head today, Jim, the, the runner at second base during extra inning games. Pro or con? You know, I, I, I don't like it. I didn't like it. But the way the game is operated today, I understand it because teams are carrying so many pitchers. In some cases, 15 pitchers. Right. They only have a few men left on their bench. And they're so afraid of pitching a reliever two days in a row. So if they get into a long extra inning game, you know, sometimes they're even bringing position players in to pitch. So that's what kind of dictated that they, that they come up with this rule so the extra inning games didn't go so long. I mean, I, I think it's just one of many rules that are sort of diluting the appeal and the quality of the game, like the DH, both mm-hmm. leagues have it now because for a while the American League uh, just had it, the National League didn't want it because they had an exciting brand of baseball. But you know, we thought the uh, the DH would uh, would take pitchers' jobs away because we were not getting pinch hit for anymore. Uh, but now with the National League going to the DH, I understand it because even in the Little League. Uh, there's usually a DH and the pitcher doesn't hit. Sometimes the pitcher is also their best hitter, but a lot of the pitchers today have not grown up like I did where you, you know, you, you took pride in hitting, whether you play an American Legion ball or high school ball. And, and nowadays pitchers, they don't hit, they don't bunt, they don't know how to slide. So you might as well not embarrass them and just take them out of that role and, and use a, use a guy that's a specialized hitter. Takes away so much from the game, not having the pitcher hit. It takes away, uh, as you said, Jim, the sacrifice bunt, uh, double switches, things like that that have been part of the game for so long that we've, we've come to know and we grow up with. And, and that changes. And now we're looking at things like, uh, they, they experimented with larger bases and I don't know what the purpose of that is. And, and, uh, it's yeah. ridiculous. Um, the pitch clock. What about a pitch clock? How would you feel about a pitch clock, Jim, on on the mound? 
Well, it wouldn't bother me. Uh, actually, I would have demanded a, a hitter's clock because most <laughs> yeah. of the time I was ready, and I had to wait for the hitter to get in the box. And then, of course, nowadays they have to fidget with their batting gloves, and, and then they have to hold their hand up to the umpire, and they go through a lot of gyrations. So if you're going to have a pitch clock, you need to counter it with a batter's clock. I will say this. They're using this in the minor leagues, uh, and it is successful. They've, uh, I understand they've taken as much as 20 minutes off a game. The sad thing is that players should have known to do that on their own. They should not have needed a pitch clock. The fans didn't come out to see you walking around the mound three times. They came out to see action. Right. So when you get the ball back, let's get ready and go with the next pitch and keep the game moving and, that's why we had good crisp games. You know, uh, two hours and 45 minutes was an extremely long game. Now, if you get a game 230 to 245, you think it's a short one. Right. You're, you're, so, you're making yeah. history. Definitely. Yeah. So all those, all those little things they're, they're doing, I don't think have added, uh, my ultimate fantasy is seven inning games, three balls you walk, two strikes you're out, which will never happen. But, uh, Pitchers would suffer fewer injuries. They then, instead of taking a mile after six innings and having thrown, we'll say, 75, 80 pitches, you might get nine of them, nine innings out of your your top pitchers like Clayton Kershaw if you had. We used to play inter-squad games like that in uh, spring training, and it was amazing how more aggressive both the pitcher and the hitter were with strike one, and the game really kept moving along nicely. And the seven-inning thing is is because of the specialization of the bullpen. You have so many pitchers coming in late in the game that really should be in the minor leagues learning their craft. It's not their fault. They're on this yo-yo. They, they bring them up and down, and they never really get to f- spend a full year in the minor leagues and, and learn their craft. And uh, so if you had seven-inning games, you'd go right from your starter probably to your your number one setup guy and then your closer and you, you wouldn't have to have as many pitchers and that say that 10 to 15 pitcher could be down in the minor leagues pitching for a year and learning how to get better. Right. Instead of watering down the talent, I understand that the, the hitters clock is, is a real interesting idea that you mentioned, Jim. I mean, like you say, guys weren't using batting gloves back, back when you started out. You had Hawk Harrelson, I think, was the first guy who used a golf glove to hit. There's no fooling around with the gloves. Get in the box. Get in, and, uh, they, they, almost all of them take the first strike. So it, they're in the hole already. I, I, I don't understand it, but that, that's just me, Jim. <laughs> Who would you say your best skipper was, Jim? Well, the the two that meant the most to me were uh, were Chuck Tanner because he really sticked with me in the seventies when I'd say most managers may have released me. Uh, you know, my record was four and six, and he called me in, said meet meet him early the next day at the ballpark, and I really thought I was going to get my release and. Uh, and he said, look, you're, you've been winning 15 games a year in this league for 15 years. I think you can still do it. You're going to start a week from Monday in Cleveland. You go down the bullpen with Johnny Sane and see if you can figure something out. Uh, well, I ended up that year 21 and 13. So a combination of Chuck uh, having confidence in me and then Johnny uh, teaching me some things that might work for me at that age, that really resurrected my career. And then pitching, uh, playing for Whitey in uh, St. Louis. Whitey mm-hmm. was 
so into the game as a game manager that he was the best I've been around. You always knew kind of where you, when the phone rang in the bullpen, you had a pretty good idea who it was going to be, you know, based on the situation. And, and he just had a knack for matching up the other team's hitters. Of course, that's when the hitters still hit in the National League. And uh, he, he was, to me, a, a, and he, he really modeled our team in St. Louis. You know, he got rid of, like, Teddy Simmons, which wasn't popular, uh, but he wanted to get more speed, uh, you know, and, and build his pitching staff for the ninth inning back. So we had Bruce Suter at the end of the game, and then we had, I think, the best defense in the league with uh, Keith Hernandez, Tommy Herr, Ozzie Smith, and Kenny Obergfell at third. Great. Yeah. And we had Lonnie Smith, Willie McGee, and George Hendrick in the outfield. So we had 67 home runs, stole 200 bases, and we won the World Series. And that was an ex- as exciting a team and a brand of baseball. I mean, the fans just loved watching that team play to get, uh, you know, hit a single, get a man on first, stolen base, hit and run. And obviously we played on AstroTurf, which made the game a bit faster. But that was such a fun team to be a, a part of. And so I, I personally, Chuck Tanner saved my career. But as a game manager, I don't think you can beat uh, what, what Whitey Herzog brings to a team in the dugout. Great points all. I'm going to ask you quickly, Jim. Uh, we're looking forward to the 24th of July. Uh, is the speech prepared and all ready to go? Oh, it is, but I have to kind of tweak it because the last words I got from Sandy Koufax when he called me to congratulate me, which I was honored about, and he said, the last thing he said, now listen, keep your speech short. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. This year we have actually seven Seven speeches, right. Yeah. And uh, so I, I've, I've shown it to some of the people at the Hall of Fame. They kind of edit it and critique it. My friend Bob Costas is looking over mine. So I pretty much, I pretty much have it, and I think I have it down close to the to the time that it should be, somewhere in eleven to twelve minute range. Yeah, those guys don't like sitting back there in the heat, Jim. Uh, oh no! no. And, <laughs> and when they have the when they have the members' dinner afterwards that night, the the guys that are long they hear about it. So yeah, I remember. I remember Tommy Lasorda. I had him on, and uh, I said, "How did you enjoy uh, last week or whenever it was the Hall of Fame ceremony?" And he went on about one guy. I won't mention his name about how long winded he was, and oh, he, yeah. he was hilarious, Lasorda. I tell you. Right. Well, Jim, it's been a real pleasure having you back on the show. I really thank you for taking time out of your Sunday evening to spend it with us up here in New York. Again, the book, folks, from our friends at Triumph in Chicago, It's Good as Gold by Eight Decades in Baseball. Thanks again, Jim, and we'll see you on the 24th. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It's been very enjoyable. You take care. That's Jim Cott, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll speak with the former sports writer from the Boston Globe, Bob Ryan, about his new book, So stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. 
You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks, welcome back. Welcome back to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. I have to tell you, I was out at City Field this week uh, for the Mets Card Series. Uh, just amazing to watch uh, Albert Pujols uh, hit hit two base hits, uh, stole second base, believe it or not, and uh how highly revered and regarded this guy is, and uh, we'll be seeing him on on uh, a July afternoon, five years from now, probably going in the Hall of Fame. I just wish the Cardinals would have stopped throwing at the Mets, and uh, it maybe maybe I'm a crybaby. I don't know, but I'll move on. And uh, how about the snow in Denver out this week? That's amazing. It was 91 day. It snowed the next. Great theater out at Coors Field, always, ladies and gentlemen. And today I saw a big crowd uh, in Lindenhurst today. Jeremy Ruckert, former tight end at uh, Lindenhurst High School and the Ohio State University, the Jets draft pick, signing autographs for the kids at an Italian ice place uh, locally. He is the Jets' new tight end uh, from Ohio State. We wish him the best, and we're going to try to get him on the program to talk to you folks uh, sometime soon. Well, our next guest, he's a sports columnist emeritus for the Boston Globe. He's a member of five Halls of Fame for his sports writing. In addition, he's a recipient of the Associated Press Sports Editor's Red Smith Award for extended meritorious labor in the art of sports writing. And the Penn Award for literary excellence in sports writing. He has been featured on various ESPN programs for over three decades. His new book is also from our buddies out in Chicago, Triumph Sports. It's called In Scoring Position, 40 Years of a Baseball Love Affair. He is the second Boston Globe writer to be on our show. You might remember we had Dan Shaughnessy on uh, a while back talking some baseball uh, with Dan. And it's great to welcome to the show tonight, Mr. Bob Ryan. Bob, good evening. Well, hi there. Thank you very much for that very flattering introduction. You are quite welcome, sir. It's turned out to be uh, a nice show. We're ha- we're having fun. We just uh, spoke to Jim Cott, and uh, we spoke oh. about his speech, and he he's uh, getting it down, trying to get it down to under ten minutes, as per Sandy Koufax. <laughs> you know, those guys don't like sitting in the heat up on the stage there, Bob, uh, on a hot July afternoon. They they want to get back to the Yoda Saga uh, as quick as they can. <laughs> I think. <laughs> Uh, I have, yeah, they want to get back to that wonderful porch. Right, in the, the backyard of the Yoda saga, definitely, yeah. now uh, I understand that, but Jim Cott, what a gentleman, what a wonderful guy, 16-time Gold Glove winner. Amazing, and, yeah. And uh, this is his belated uh, entrance into the Hall of Fame. I'm so happy for him. Yeah, we're looking forward to seeing Jim up there that weekend. Uh, before we begin, Bob, I'd be remiss in not asking you for your thoughts on the passing of the great Roger Angel. I wish I had known him personally better, but trust me, I am a huge fan. And uh, I've got several of his publications right down to uh, his writings about age, uh, this old man, and, and let me finish his autobiography, but I have uh, others of his books. 
Raja Angel is uh, a man who understood and appreciated baseball and be able to articulate it in a way that none of us could. And he is a special person. And uh, so, uh, you know, um, happy that he lived the wonderful life that he lived up to 101. Uh, I, I hope we all can do that. But this is a special, special man. Very well put. Very well put, Bob. That is for sure. Now, getting down to you now, uh, you used to go out to dinner with the Boston Celtics, whom you covered, of course, for the Globe. Uh, you'd, you'd sit near the bench. The, uh, your colleagues referred to you as the commissioner. Mm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. That was, uh, that was flattering. Yeah. And, and I, I really appreciated that. Yes, uh, basketball was... Uh, very important to me. I, I covered the, the Celtics from 79 to 76 to, to 80, uh, 69 to 76, excuse me, and then again two different times over a period of 14 years, dating from 69 to the end of the 85-86 season, which was, I think, the best pre-three-point mania team in history. And basketball was my identity, and uh, but all along, baseball was my mistress. Uh, uh, the, the two sports that uh, were my found, I called them my foundation sports mm-hmm. growing up in the 50s were baseball and college basketball. Interesting and very well put about the mistress, Bob. I like that. Now, several several incidents that I read about, incidents or, or uh, situations taking place, the great Hugh Hollins went to the press table to explain a call to you during a timeout. That's that's pretty great. Another time, Bob wrote a column about Rick Mahorn, and Rick Mahorn playing a little dirty under the hoop, <laughs> right? McCor- Mahorn was called for a foul, and the great Gene Shue turns around and says, that's your fault, Bob Ryan, right? <laughs> that is all true. Yeah. What happened was uh, Mahorn was a was a very rugged player. Yes. And I, 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 he had, something had happened, and I had contacted the then referee official, and I said, well, do you spend specific attention to certain people? Most notably, Rick Mahorn. And he said, yeah, we have to keep an eye on him. And so I wrote this in my Sunday column, and then the next time the Bullets appeared in Boston, Gene Shue was the coach, and there was a foul early in the game on, on, on um, the horn, and he turned around and jumped at me and looked at me and said, Bob Ryan, that's your fault. <laughs> that, that's, well, it was hilarious. Um, he was aware, aware that I had written about Mahorn and had contacted the league officials. but uh, the, So that was funny, yes. And it really happened. One of my friend Dan Charnes' great stories. They love to tell, <laughs> that, but it really happened. That is and, a, uh, that some Gene, great stuff, yeah, Bob. Yeah, you reacting to Rick Mahorn. Rick Mahorn, I won't say he was a thug, but he was a rather uh, aggressive individual. Aggressive, yes. Okay, we'll leave it at that, Bob. Yeah, now, yeah. you had an issue with Tommy Heinsohn. Tommy Heinsohn's book, uh, he, he's really negative towards you, and... Uh, he, you would make play, friends with the players and vent their feelings toward Heinsohn, and he had a problem with you, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and I 
problem was at the very, very beginning, I spent a lot of time with Tom Heinsohn, and I owe him a lot to help me teach the nuances of the NBA. When I started covering, I was 23 years old. I was a refugee from college basketball. I had not been involved in the NBA, and I, I leaned on Tommy to help me understand the nuances of the NBA. And then when, I also became friends with the players. And as time went on, their interpretation of things was different than Tommy's, and he resented that. He thought I was betraying him. And so uh, we had a issue which culminated in the 76 finals when we were not talking at all. And I chose to uh, reside during the 76 finals against Pete, uh, Phoenix in Paul Westfall's house, who was a close friend. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the only time that a member of the most important uh, uh, entity, journalistic entity, covering the short tournament, was spending time or living in the house of the best player of the opposing team. But Tommy uh, and I have, were hitting. Well, let me, let me jump to the collusion. Uh, two years later, uh, we were at a testimonial for his old roommate, Jim Luskatov. And I walked up to Tommy and I said, would it spoil your night if I said hello? And he said no. And for that, we were, we were fine. And for the next, you know, X years until Tommy died last year, we were friends. So we, we, we patch it up. Great story, Bob. Bob Ryan from the Boston Globe, uh, writer emeritus, is with us tonight. And Tommy was not the easiest guy to get along with, I bet, though. Well, Tommy was smart. And, and Tommy yeah. was, I was disappointed that Tommy didn't see the re- journalistic role the way I thought he would. He reacted in a very predictable way, uh, protecting his turf. Uh, and when I had a, a point of view that differentiated with him and, and reflected more of the, what the players were thinking. Obviously, he was very upset. And, you know, we're talking about people like John Havlicek, uh, Don Nelson, Paul Silas, uh, etc. And he was, uh, you know, he was upset. We had a very big falling out during the 76 finals. But I, I believe in the end, uh, we were friends uh, and, and calm, uh, you know, uh, very compatible Right until the day he died, he did several things for me, podcasts and uh, et cetera. And, uh, you know, it, it, it all worked out. But, yes, in 1976, it wasn't going so well. <laughs> yeah. But in the next 40 X years, it went very well. Nice. Nice that you patched things up with Heinsohn, Bob. That's great. Yeah, I did. I wanted to. Now, how would you feel working today with the, with the, with Twitter and uh, all the social, social media? How would you have found covering the Celtics to be with all these uh, aspects taken into consideration? Well, I retired officially in 2012 after the London Olympics. Oh, okay. And, and everything that's happened subsequent, uh, it would have been difficult. I don't like the way that things are going. I don't like the fact that game stories, as I was taught to write, don't uh, exist anymore. Uh, you, you, you cover the game in a different way. And I, I, I would have had a problem knowing what I know. And I respect the fact that guys now, who only know what they know in this world, and, and they're very good. There's good writers. So they're, they're all good writers. But um, the way we went about the game, the way we covered the game, was a different way. And uh, uh, I, you know, I have to reconcile myself to that. 
so I still go to games. I still follow the games. Uh, I'm engaged. I have podcasts. Uh, but uh, I, I think I would have written the games a little differently than the way they were. That, but game stories, as I knew, but in the beginning and middle and end, don't exist anymore. No one wants them. Mm-hmm. And that's what I prided myself on. You had said, Bob, that you wanted your retirement to be graceful, that you weren't bitter, you enjoy your your job, but they are chipping away, chipping away. Elaborate on that for us. Well, it's true. The access. Oh, you know, we we traveled with them. We I walked into practice an hour before the practice and just talked to people, got to know them, uh, got to see the practice, got to understand what the plays were all about. Uh, you know, I knew all the plays. That doesn't exist anymore. No one will know. No one today will have the access that we had. They won't. They won't. They just won't have the relationships that we had. Period. And I'm so glad I did it when I did it and where I did it. And and I I, I feel badly for these people today because their experience, however they think it is, it won't be the same. It can't be the same. It won't be as good. And I'm very happy I did it when I did it. Outstanding. We're speaking with the great writer Bob Ryan tonight on Sports Talk New York. Let's get to this tremendous book, Bob, In Scoring Position, 40 Years of a Baseball Love Affair. Uh, folks, you will love this book. When you hold it in your hand, it's it's a beautiful piece of literature. You'll enjoy it. Uh, the forward by Jason Stark. Pretty good, Bob. Well, that was totally flattering. Yeah. Truly. I had no idea Jason felt that way about me or, or his experience with me. And, and you know, when we asked Jason to do the forward is because he was such a, so associated with baseball. I had no idea he was going to turn it into something that was so flattering to me and, and also to my wonderful partner, Bill Chuck. So, yes, thank you, Jason, very much. This is a book about my score books, which began with the 1977 season. And I have seven uh, nine books uh, of the U.S. Baseball Writers books uh, covering 1,400-plus games over the last, uh, you know, 44 years. And the stuff that's in there, the interesting things about baseball that separate baseball and, and, and that make baseball uh, the best conversational fodder of all the four major sports. Going hockey, soccer, fine. That's fine with me. Uh, make it five. Uh they don't compare to what is available in baseball, mm-hmm. and I believe that firmly, and, and there's stuff in here to prove that. Uh, right. and there's so many intricate, uh, intricate things about baseball. And my partner, Bill Chuck, uh, it was his idea uh, back in in the 2020. He said, I think you have a book in all your school books. And I said, oh, come on. He said, no, really, I believe that. <laughs> and I ran it by people, as he suggested, and they said they were a positive response. I read it by my agent, Andrew Blanner, and he sold it to Triumph Books. And now we have a book on my, and now the point about my, my own experience with these 1400 games is that you or anyone listening might have his or her separate experience over his or her 1400 games that would include stuff that I don't have. Baseball is by far richer than the other four, three sports put together. When it counts soccer, fine. Uh, there's more conversational fodder in baseball than the other the ones put together. I really believe that, and I think my book is proof of that. So my true. My book is fun to read, mm-hmm. and also, by the way, 
very much in, in time for Father's Day for that uh, father or grandfather who loves baseball. Of course. That goes without saying. I'm glad you mentioned Bill, Bill Chuck, Bob because I wanted to uh, let the people know what his role is in the book. Oh. And and uh, talk a little bit about more about Bill and his role in the project. It was indispensable. Bill suggested to me, we were talking on the phone in 2020, and Bill called me because I had been tweeting in the early part of the 2020 baseball season my scorebook, Kibbit, uh, from the 77 season that I – covered the Red Sox for the first time. And I was doing a daily diary of my experience from the 77 season. And he said, are you going to do this every year, every day? I said, yeah, I'm not intention. And then that led to a discussion of the fact that he knew I had all these score books, every one from the beginning of the 77. I scored every single game I have been to since 77, home, away, uh, vacation, whatever. And, and he said, you got a book there. I said, oh, come on. He said, no, you do. And I ran it by some people, and they thought it was a good idea. I ran it by the agent, and he sold it to Triumph Books. Trust me, there'd be no book without Bill Chuck. Secondly, Bill Chuck contributes after I write what I, you know, was with these entries in this book, 150 different games uh, are all about. Bill supplies additional uh, historical and, and otherwise information that I didn't have. So it's a joint project, and believe me, it's not just Bob Ryan. It's also Bill Chuck. Very good. Very, very interesting, Bill's role in the project. Now, I want to ask you, as they say in the great baseball cliche, right off the bat, Bob, who taught you how to score a baseball game? I don't know. Okay. I always <laughs> did. I, I don't know. Look, baseball, I grew up in a baseball family. Uh, my father uh, was involved in both minor league baseball and the college athletics, and and uh, I, I have no. Uh, I, I was always going to baseball games my whole life, and so I don't know, but I know I always scored. I have many, 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 many games scored prior to these 1977 scorebooks, but this is when I started covering the Celtics, I mean, excuse me, the Red Sox, and I and I had the scorebooks. And, and I started these particular books. So this reflects these particular books from 77. Trust me, I scored many, many games prior to that. But uh, this is all reflection. And I don't know who taught me. All I know is everyone who scores has his or her little individual uh, technique. And, and I'm right. not going to say that my technique is perfect, or that, but I know it works for me. And But uh, trust this is... This is all I can tell you that I don't know when I started. And this is all I, I always feel. If I don't go to a game and don't score it, I feel mentally naked. That's all I can tell you. Interesting. Okay, yeah. I have to tell you that I probably have not scored a game since I was about 11 or 12 years old. Uh, I, I taught myself how to do it. I, I did it wrong, of course. <laughs> but but I knew. <laughs> well, no right or wrong. Yeah. The only I, absolutes. You're right. The only Bob. absolutes yeah. are. Um, you know, each, each, each position has a number. All right. So one is the pitcher, two uh, catcher, three first base, four second, six uh, short, five left, seven, eight, nine. All right. That's only absolute. And the other thing I think is absolute. Strikeouts a K and a look at strike 
called strike is a backward case. Right. That's one of the issues of competition. Other than that, we all have our own, our own technique. Our own little nuance, exactly. You're, you're right, Bob. Uh, not all these games are Red Sox games. Oh, no. No. Oh, no. Right. That's the whole point. Uh, I, I travel, every flight, I wish there were more minor league games involved, maybe volume two, but, uh, 53 major league parks, 43 minor league parks I've been to since 77. And there's quite a few playoff games and, and postseason games and regular season games that don't involve the Red Sox. Well, like for example, uh, Deion Sanders, uh, having a phenomenal game, uh, for Atlanta against the Mets. That's in there. Uh, there's some of the other things that are, don't involve the Red Sox that are in the playoffs. I, uh, the, one of them is, the uh, 95, the great, the first great uh, ALDS, Yankees and Mariners, still one of the great playoff series ever. Uh, that's in there. There's so many things in there and uh, that aren't Red Sox ones. So don't think this is just Bob Ryan writing about the Red Sox. You know, <laughs> no. It's just Bob Ryan and Bill Chuck taking care of uh, many other places. Interesting, folks, as we said, a tremendous read. If you love baseball, you gotta love this book. Now, let, let's ask you, Bob, uh, are there any famous games in there? Yes. Well, for example, um, Reggie Jackson's three home grain, home grain games in 77. And there's an anecdote to as many times as I can provide a personal anecdote, I, I do. And that, and there was one with Reggie that's in there and how I got Reggie to sign that book 20 years, 26 years later and Reggie's spectacular signature, which in, which is Reggie Jackson, uh, in, in, in immaculate form and then on, in, the, in the loop of the Mr. October and in the loop of the big J on the Jackson. Number forty-four. Yeah, I don't think too many people have that signature. That's that's on the cover. You'll see it on the cover of the book, folks. The uh, that is correct. Yeah, and then uh, there's so many others. One of my favorites, uh, Joe Cowley, in nineteen six uh, eighty-six. I go out to Anaheim, and Joe Cowley throws a no hitter with one run, uh, which is the ugliest no hitter ever. <laughs> and I and I, and I score he, he a lot of run on a sacrifice fly. In this game, he threw 69 strikes and 69 balls. Do you imagine throwing a no-hitter with 69 strikes? Well, Joe Cowley did. Oof. He did a lot of run. After the game, Eddie Sherman of the Chicago Trib and I are having a beer at the bar. And who's across the bar but Joe Cowley? And there, we, I go over and Joe Cowley signs the book. Well, it turns out it's the last game he ever won in the major leagues. Wow. He never won another game. Yeah. And I have suddenly examples of things like that. That's the whole point. I've got one-off things in this book that, you know, that, that stand up the test of time. And uh, that's one of them. Treasures, absolute treasures. Real quick, uh, Bob, Bob Ryan with us tonight. Your favorite. Any favorites? Well, one of my ultimate favorites, Reggie Cleveland. On the 25th of September, 1977, the last road game of the 77 season, Reggie Cleveland takes the mound in Tiger Stadium, and he completes the game. They beat the Tigers 12-5. to Reggie allows 18 hits and has a complete game and wins the game. And he has no three-ball counts. And it turns out to be the last game he ever won for the Red Sox. And 
it's the last time anyone ever allowed that many hits in a complete game to win, and that's in there. That's the kind of stuff that's involved in this book. Amazing. Well, Bob Ryan, thanks for taking the time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here in New York. Once again, folks, from Triumph, the book is titled In Scoring Position, 40 Years of a Baseball Love Affair. It's from Bob Ryan and Bill Chuck. Thanks again, Bob. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Have a good night. That's Bob Ryan, folks. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Jim Cott and Bob Ryan, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you folks for joining us. See you next on June 5th with Hall of Famer The Baby Bull, Orlando Cepeda, and Blondie's drummer, Clem, Clem Burke. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.